Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here with us, and thank you for allowing me to be here with you, Dave. It's wonderful to have you back from vacation, and it's wonderful to see so many high school students on stage. I am Doug Brown. I am the high school pastor, and a lot of my friends are over there. Hello. Thank you guys for showing up and being here. I'm very proud of you. You all look wonderful. Um, It's an exciting time of the year for me and especially for us in student ministries. A lot of us who work full-time don't necessarily feel the the change of the seasons, the birding, the weeping and gnashing of teeth that is going back to school. And it's difficult because there's a lot more to do. There's a lot more uh, things that are on our plate. And as you become an adult and you get older, I'm sorry to tell you, that just happens all the time. But um, for us, we don't necessarily feel that. But for me, it's an exciting time. Uh, going back to school, and even for myself, going and being in grad school and studying philosophy at Talbot, it's an exciting time for me. And for us too, as we close our series about First John, about true life and real love, and we look forward to learning about how we are better together in studying Ephesians. Today, I hope to end this series and end this season in a lot of ways the same way that the book of 1 John ends. And I want you to, as you get ready, open your Bibles up to 1 John. Just open it up to 1 John 5 and stay there, and we will be there shortly. But as this book ends, as this letter ends that that John is writing, as he ends this letter, he wants his followers, his people, the church that he pastors in a lot of ways, to know that they should have confidence in their faith. As you know, and have you seen throughout this series, the church that he is writing to is shaken. In a lot of ways, it's broken. It's split. They need confidence. They need to be built up and encouraged. And as John writes this letter, I truly believe that that is his goal, that his people would go out and know the faith that they have and truly experience the life which is affected by knowing Christ. So, as we get there, and as you're there, I need to set up, in a lot of ways, the context of what's happening in this passage, and in this book, really. And I need you to understand what it really means to know something. At first glance, it might seem obvious, oh, we know, yes, I know that I'm standing in this room, or something like that. But truly, I want to look at what it's like to know something and have faith in something. Because believe it or not, and some of us in this room are of an older generation, which is good and great, and you understand this more even than our young people, but knowing something and having faith in something in our modern context is being challenged. And it's not as easy to understand as it used to be. So I'm going to do it in two ways. I'm going to tell you a story and I'm going to give you an analogy. And then after that, we will go through First John 5 and look at these things that John wants his followers to know. Does that make sense? We're on board? Okay, here's my story to help you understand this. And like Dave said, sometimes things are, it's, you know, what are we going with this? It will make sense, trust me. But on Wednesday, we normally have church, high school group, you don't know this, normally we have church on Wednesday night. We didn't this year because they're all going back to school and they're busy and we, you know, take one week off. So on Wednesday, I just thought, I'll cook my wife dinner. It'll be great. I made something in the oven. I'm not a great cook, but I know how to, you know, follow directions. So I made something in the oven and then later that night we ate it and it was wonderful. We had a great night. And then you know, fast forward till midnight, all right? Midnight, I am asleep in my bed, sound asleep on my comfort pillow, and yet as I'm sleeping in my backyard, 
I have this small patio, it's a wooden fenced patio. I live in an apartment complex. In a small planter box, there is smoke burrowing, you know, billowing. What does smoke do? It's billowing in the backyard, right? And then at one moment, the smoke catches fire. And inside of my planter box, there's a small fire now brewing, a wooden planter box. And brilliant me, out of an awesome design move, I put a wooden sign inside of our planter box, right? It says, the brown wedding on it. It's from our wedding, right? So the smoke and begins to turn into fire and grow up the sign. And the sign, don't worry, it's leaning against my wooden fence. Oh no. And as it grows, it's turning into a bigger and bigger fire smoke is now billowing and the fence the entire fence catches on fire and it's shooting 10 foot flames up into our apartment complex sky and raging and raging and all of a sudden who lives directly behind me my neighbor named Corey Broche who's married to Melissa Broche who some of you might even know he sees this he runs upstairs tells Melissa wakes Melissa up Call the fire department. Get the kids outside. And he runs down like a hero and starts working on his hose. My other neighbor, who's Erin Hempel, who's married to Matt Hempel, who's a pastor over at Prodigal Church, she is awake somehow at midnight. She stays up super late. She's washing her hands in the sink going, that's a strange light that I'm... Maybe it's a... There's a barbecue. It's pretty late. And then all of a sudden sees the fire. Oh, no! And all the while, I am upstairs... Absolutely. We have these air conditioners because it's been so hot lately. It's just loud and I got no idea what's going on. I'm laying there. And as I'm laying there, Aaron says, I got to go wake them up. So she finds our key because she has a key to our house. She runs in. It's pitch black. She runs up our stairs. Still, I'm totally out. She busts in through the door with the light on and I shoot out of bed like someone has hit me with a thousand volts of electricity, right? And I'm sitting up and she just says, you have to wake up. Your backyard's on fire. And I'm Wow, I get up as fast as I can. And I run downstairs and she's screaming, your backyard's on fire. Your backyard's on fire. It hasn't even computed in my mind what that even means. I run down and I turn the sink on. That's just the first thought I had. Just <laughs> There's water here. This isn't on fire. And my backyard is just burning. The whole fence is just burning. So I run outside. I turn the hose on, and the hose is pointed directly at my face. (laughs) Soaks my face and my shirt. And I and I'm sitting there, and I just start spraying the, the the fence. And my neighbor Corey is standing up on a lawn chair. It had grown. It had caught my umbrella on fire. It had caught this all this stuff in our backyard on fire, just melting. Right. And we put the fire out in seconds. It just went out real fast. Thank God, right? Thank God it wasn't worse than that. And I'm standing there hosing it off. And then the most embarrassing thing, if you've ever had a fire at your house, something small like that, the most embarrassing thing that ever happens is these awesome, fully dressed firefighters get there and then they question you and you couldn't feel more like a child who just ran into the street after a ball or something like that, you know? He asked me, so what did you do? Well, I was, well, as I was cooking dinner, I had to put some of these like, little embers in the planter box to put them out. And he's just shaking his head. I'm standing there like a wet dog, just soaking. He's standing there. He's like eight feet tall. So you put what was in fire in the wooden box. I'm like, yeah, sorry. So you know you shouldn't have done that. Yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that. Sorry, I don't, know. I don't know what I was thinking. And it was, everything's okay. They fixed the fence. 
I'm never going to cook again in my entire life. We're okay. But rewind with me to in the story, right? Use this. This is your framework, okay? This is going to, believe it or not, like Dave said, it will make sense. This is going to help you understand First John, all right? That weird story will help you understand the context of going into these passages, okay? Because here's what's happening in John's day in the first century church into which he's writing, and in a lot of ways, believe it or not, happening right now in our culture, okay? Aaron, my neighbor, runs up the stairs. You have to wake up. Your backyard's on fire. Get up now. And I sit up. Would this be a reasonable response? A reasonable response. Sorry, I choked. A reasonable response. If I sat up and went, how do you know that my backyard is on fire? You really know that my backyard is on fire? Yes, I've seen it. Your backyard is on fire. And I say, Aaron, furthermore, how do you even really know what fire is? And even beyond that, how can we know that you truly could experience fire? I mean, what is it? It's an element. How do we even process elements? Did you see it? How do you know that your vision and your capacity to understand your senses is accurate enough that you can depict what's happening in reality into your mind and then transfer those thoughts to me? I'm not buying it. I'm going back to bed. She would take a baseball bat and bam! You wake up and I would be a fool, right? A fool for questioning what she knows so well and a fool for not acting immediately based on an eyewitness, a testimony of what's happening in my backyard. Can any of you draw the conclusion? Can any of you see what's happening in the church that John is writing to? What's happening is a philosophical change in this, in this area. People are saying, did Christ really come? Was he really here in the flesh? Was he really truly a man? Or is it more that you must tune your spirit into who the Christ is? And as you enlighten yourself to that mystical knowledge, then you have salvation. It doesn't really matter what you do, because he didn't really come in the flesh. Do you see how John is mad and angry and just out of his mind? How dare you question what I know? And that's why he writes this letter to these people and says, know this. Don't be questioning this. Don't be pulled away by empty philosophy. Know this. And when you know this, it will affect you and it will change you. This is, that's my story. Here's my analogy, okay? Because we have in our modern culture weird ways of thinking about the word knowing something. Or we even have weird ways about comprehending, thinking about something, or the confidence we have in something. Is this following me? Okay, here's my analogy. Pretend that Dave is standing up here, okay? And Dave is going to, he's going to go rappelling. And he's going to fall backwards this way. And this is a big cliff, a thousand feet down, say. That's a very long rope. But he's going to go down that way, right? And I'm holding the rope, and I'm the instructor, okay? And Dave, being weary of me, because I don't know why, uh, he's just weary of me. And he's standing there, and I'm holding the rope. And he says, are you sure that this rope can hold me? And this was my response to him. Yeah, I bet it could hold you. <laughs> yeah, I bet it can. Would he have very much confidence in me? No, probably not at all. What if he said, do you know that this rope can hold me? I said, well, I hope it can. <laughs> and he would, he, have, he would be off the ledge, right? What if he said, do you know this rope can hold me? Yeah, what do you, can this rope hold me? Would tell me. And I said, I think it can. I think it can. 
You'd go, well, what do you mean? You'd explain to me what do you think I can. Well, what if I said this? I know that this rope can hold you. I know that it can. He would say, all right, it's pretty good, right? Now, how about this? If I were to say to you, Dave's on the ledge. I'm holding the rope. He says, can this rope hold me? And I say, I have faith that this rope can hold you. What would you think? I have faith that this rope can, can hold you. How many, and I want you to do this. Raise your hand if you think that would, be com- that would give you confidence. Do you think it would? Yeah? How many people think, people in our culture, if I said, yeah, I have faith that this rope could hold you, do you think they would have confidence? I don't think they would. Why? Because I think we misunderstand the concept of faith. And that's at the center of what is, these passages are about. Having faith. Our culture has totally changed and messed up what faith is. These things were at the center of me questioning my faith post high school and going into college. People saying, how do we really know the things we know? How do we really know what we know about Christ? And all of a sudden, doubting and this sort of passive doubting where you're not really actively pursuing anything. You're just kind of using your doubt to push you further away from God and put blocks up further yourself from God. And as you use that doubt to push yourself away, the doubting becomes some sort of holy exercise where all you do in life is just doubt. And I see it happening amongst our high school students. I'm so proud of them in the way that they, that they attack and they actively pursue doubt. But they are being challenged. And I'm telling you this, anyone who's not their age, they are being challenged, not in the facts in which they know, but in the way in which we can know anything at all. And they're saying, you can't have faith in anything. You must reduce your faith. You must reduce what faith means. And for a lot of us here, maybe this is where we sit. Maybe this is the camp in which we're in. When, we, when I say, have faith, the faith that you think about, and this is why we have to know this before we go into the passage, the faith that you must have sometimes is thought of like this. Okay, I, I believe that God exists. I want God to exist. I can't know for sure. I cannot know for sure that God exists, but that's okay. I have faith. That's why I have faith. And if that's you, and you could do this with all sorts of things. I believe in the Bible. Yeah, but we can't really know that that's what they wrote down. That's why I have faith. And if that's you, that's okay. I'm glad you're here. We love you and we want you to be here, but I must tell you, you've misunderstood faith and you're wrong, but that's okay. You can recover to this morning, right now. (laughs) Because that is not technically even what faith means. I have a favorite professor. I'm in his class right now. His name is J.P. Moreland. And there's a quote on your outline, on the back of it, that's from J.P. Moreland. Don't read it now. You probably won't even understand it at first glance. But I want you to, to read through it in your own time and see that it makes sense. But basically what he's saying is this. We as Christians have reduced what faith means into some type of thing that says, okay, I don't really have enough evidence to believe in something, but that's why I have faith. And he says, no, may it never be. Faith has always meant believing in something, knowing something based on reasonable evidence to believe in that thing. Faith is a strong command. It is the strongest command. If I were standing up in here and someone said, how do I know that this rope works? And I said, I have faith that it does. They should say, amen, then let me go because that is the strongest thing that you could have. Yet even in John's day and in our day, this is what's being lost. Faith. It's being given over. There's a whole lot of reasons why we could get into that, of why it's happened, but we don't have time now. But faith is being lost. 
And with that understanding that John is wanting them to know that Christ has come and to know these things and to have faith, reasonable belief based on good evidence in these things, that is what he's calling them to. Then you can read 1 John 5, 13. Go there. Because it says this. He's going to challenge them to think things. He's going to challenge them to know things. And this morning, we want to challenge you to know things, to understand things, and allow that to change the way you live. In 1 John 5.13, he's going to open up his passage by saying, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The Word of God is for confidence. Jesus is for confidence. You should have confidence in these things, in what you know about Christ. Your faith should strengthen you and change you. He moves on to prayer. And he's going to say this. He's going to say this. Whoops, one more. I'm so sorry. That we should know that we can have confidence in our prayer. In 1 John 5.14 it says this, This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. This, for John's followers, is revolutionary. That there can be a union of wills. That our requests can go to God and God can then hear them and do something with them. For the people that this letter was written to, this is not how the world operated. God was distant. God was far away. We could not ever affect God. We could never be in relationship with God. But John comes and says, no, it is something more intimate than that. It is something greater than that. But us, in our modern context, we understand that more. So this passage can start to become a formula, right? We can start to think of this as a formula. Oh, great, if I ask anything of them... Uh, according to his will, and he hears it, great, then I'll know that it'll come true, right? And we think, okay, let me align my will to his will, right? Let me just, as long as I ask something that he wants for me, great, I'll get it. Think of it me like going skydiving, like what I did with Matt Davis for VBS, and I pray, God, please don't let me die skydiving, right? And oh, I didn't die, great, that must have been God's will, wonderful, right? I think, and honestly, I know John is talking about something much, much deeper, Move over in your Bibles to John 15. John 15, verse 5. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I mess that up? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, John 15, verse 5. When you get there, read with me. In John verse 15, verse 5, what John is doing is quoting and, and re, re, restating in a lot of ways his gospel, which is quoting Jesus. He's not just talking about some kind of formula where we get what we want as long as it's what God wants. He's talking about something deeper. And in John 15, 5, it says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then jump down to verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also love you. Abide in my love. The type of relationship in which John is talking about is a relationship 
where our will is in union with God's will. And our will dies with Christ and is brought back to life and re-given to us in that God's will becomes our will. Think about this as one voice. Our voice becomes God's voice. And when that happens, when the Lord is created in us and Christ is formed in us, then our prayers are aligned with God and we are in union. And in that moment, God can hear us. Well, he always hears us, but God hears our prayers and God then answers our prayers. Prayer does not work like some type of vending machine where I've put in my prayer, hopefully it's the right type of prayer, And oh, I get a result. It's deeper than that. John is calling to them. And for them, it would be revolutionary. Move on with me. As he continues to talk about prayer in 1 John 5, 16. How are you all doing? Are you following along with me? Doing well? This is very fun. I thank you for the opportunity. In John 5, 16, he says this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him, give him, well, God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. Okay, deal. So we pray for the, for the people who are committing sins who are not leading to death. But the ones who are committing the sin leading to death, we should not concern ourselves with them. That's easy to understand because we all know that the sin leading to death is showing up late for church. So we can just move on right for there and just skip to the... No, this is, it's difficult to understand this part. But I think at this point, you have to be a good scholar in a lot of ways. You have to understand what's happening. And I think the best way to understand this and to see this is in the context of what's happening. Go back to the fire story. John is, he's upset with these people who are saying, Christ didn't really live. This is, this, you're getting it all wrong. And he's saying, how dare you? No, Christ did live. And what this sin is, is just an open-eyed rejection of Jesus as Lord, as a man who even existed. Not, not even viewing him as a good moral teacher, but just someone who didn't even exist. And these people who have left the church are saying, We aren't even concerned ourselves with this anymore. And yet so many of John's followers are still in the church and still hurting and still having a difficult time in this difficult world. And he's saying, concern yourself with those around you. Now, when we put this in our modern context, this doesn't mean that we, oh, give up on missions and give up on evangelism. Oh, the unbelievers, oh, we just won't concern ourselves. That is not what's happening. Because it says in other parts of the Bible that we should always be going out and spreading the gospel to the whole world and making disciples of everyone. That is our goal. What is happening here is I believe John is giving us priorities. And for us, this is the same truth, that we should have priorities when it comes to the faith, right? When they ask Jesus, what's the greatest command in the law? What is, he says, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and then loving your brothers and sisters, loving your neighbors. And I challenge you today, when you come to the gospel, and when you come to Christ, that you should know that we can have confidence in our prayer. But our first priority is to know that prayer is a union between us and Christ. Therefore, it should be our daily goal to commit ourselves to loving the Lord our God, creating the picture of Christ in us, so that when we have a relationship with God, we are one voice. And our priority then falls to us, 
to our brothers and sisters in Christ that we would care for one another and pray for one another. But we would also care for the unbelievers, the hurting in our communities, and that we would go out and that we would share the gospel. That's what we should know, and we should have confidence in that. John moves on, and he says, We know that we are born again and that we are sustained by God alone. Read with me in verse 18 now. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Well, you might think, we who are born of God, we don't sin? Great! I've always thought that I never sinned. We're like, no, this is, a, this is a problem for us. But I think it's good to view this verse in light of the last verse, when he says, they are the ones who are sinning. They are the ones who have left the faith. Stay here with us. I believe what John is saying is that when you come to Christ, it is Christ who saves you. Like Eric said last week, that God has sent his son in belief and faith in his son alone is what saves you. And you no longer act and live and are in the camp of the unbelievers. And God sustains you. We should strive to be sustained by God and God alone. That's what John, he returns to this familiar narrative that he has over and over in, the, in, this, in this letter. That there's light and there's dark. There's good and then there's evil. You are in the camp of good. God has saved you. You are here. Be sustained and live in this alone. You are not in the dark anymore. And what does this look like for us? They know what that looks like. That looks very clear for them. But what does it look like for us? It looks like for us life change, radical life change, that we would no longer look to anyone else to be sustained. We would look to no one else to find our life. A brief story for you, bizarre circumstances. The last time I spoke here with you all was Father's Day. Do you remember Father's Day? Go back in your mind, Father's Day, right? And on that day, I was preaching. Oh, it was a good test. Does anyone know what I preached on? I preached, I won't even give you a chance to answer that. I preached on putting our faith into action, right? Remember that? You cannot say one thing and do another thing, right? Faith means action. And that's what he's coming back to here. That we are sustained by God alone. And God reorders our life. And that we cannot believe in him and not do the things of him. Well, that day was an interesting day for me. Because I don't know if many of you know this, but me and my wife, Jessie, we can't have children biologically on our own. We've gone through this long struggle of infertility, and it's been a difficult journey for us for years, honestly. And we, we were so tempted to look everywhere else for comfort, to look everywhere else, to turn to anything that would comfort us. But we knew, based on our faith in Christ, we knew that in God alone we would be comforted. And in God alone could we be sustained. We are no longer in the dark. We are in the light. So we do the things of the light. And the things of the light are relying on God, loving Him, priorities, creating Christ in us. And on that day, well, we had been, we had been thinking about adoption a lot, right? We've been thinking about we want to adopt children. We want to bring in these orphans who need care, who need love. We've been given this opportunity, it seems, by God to just truly 
care for people, right? On that Sunday, I spoke to you in light of knowing something. And what I knew was that the next day at 11 o'clock in the morning, I was going to go meet a little boy named Matthew. And I had to decide when I met him, me and my wife had to decide when we met him, if we were going to raise him for the rest of his life. And I'm sitting here teaching You can't have faith without action. In the back of my head, I'm going, oh no, ah, that means I cannot have faith without action. That means I cannot live in the darkness anymore. And I'm so excited to say that that we met him the next day, and then four days later, he came home to be with us for the rest of his life. So we now have, thank you very much, we now have a little son named Matthew, and he's wonderful, and he, he can tell you his story when he gets older and becomes awesome. But that's our side of the story, is that we, and let me be real with you, as, as believers, everything changes. Like I said, we are sustained by God alone. We shouldn't live in any other way than a full denial and leaving of the darkness and living in the light. And that looks like doing a lot of things differently. That looks like putting ourselves out there. That looks like having faith in God to sustain us. He even has more. John goes on to say that because of this and in light of this, we know that the world lives in opposition to God. Read in verse 19. We know that we are, that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is simple to understand. If we're to be sustained by God and be in union with God, it's because The world lies in the power of the evil one. It's not fighting it. It's not resisting it. It's not trying its hardest to stay away from the world. It rests calmly in the arms of the evil one. But we, as John wants you to know, and we want you to know, do not lie in the arms of the evil one. You are the redeemed ones. You lie in the arms of God. And in light of that, do not look to the world for anything. You are of God. So look to God to sustain you and to, and to revive you. And in Him you will find your life. And what does that look like? He goes on to say this, We know Jesus The Messiah who is true. And this, in a lot of ways, is just in the face of all of these empty philosophies that are going on in the first century. And in verse 20, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. That's an important word. So that we may know Him who is true. Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. The people in the first century crave understanding. They crave truth. They crave knowledge. And John comes along and says, here's what I want you to know, church, that you can have union with Christ, that you can have union with God, that you are not in the camp of the darkness. You are in the light because What is your hope in the world? What is your way to the future? What is the way for understanding? It's not the empty knowledge that the Gnostic philosophies, these empty philosophies of the day are providing. That's not the way. And it's not even in another type of truth. It's not in a different way of understanding. It's in Him. It's in Him. It's not in an idea. It's in a man. It's in Christ Jesus alone who is truth. In Him we have understanding. In Him we have life. 
who is Jesus Christ, and He is God. He is our Lord. This is in the face of all these empty philosophies. And He says, have that be your aim. And my challenge to you too, in our modern context, this looks like we pursue truth in nothing else but Christ alone. In Christ alone. Amen. Absolutely. And he ends with this in verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And I would say to you that as we move forward and as we think about these things, we will be tempted to put a lot of other things on the throne in our lives. We will be tempted to put anything above God, whether it be work, whether it be addiction, whether it be other relationships, whatever it is, we will be tempted to put anything else on the throne besides God. And John says, know that you cannot do that. Know that you are in God, that He has come to provide union with Himself so that you will be protected by Him and sustained by Him alone. Know that no other thing can sit on the throne in your life. Guard yourself from idols. Guard yourself from slipping into worshiping other things. That's his challenge to the first century church, and that's our challenge to you. But I have encouragement for you that we at Calvary, in so many ways, are doing this, are living this type of life. I don't know if you know this, but I grew up here at Calvary. And I don't know if you know this, but this October, I believe, Calvary is celebrating its 84th birthday. Give Calvary a round of applause. There's the people of Calvary. 84 years. That is a long time. And as Calvary started in the 30s in a storefront in downtown Santa Ana, we had something at our core. And not just us, but the larger church, but specifically talking here today, us. We had something at our core. And what was that core? The knowledge of God. The knowledge of these things that John wanted us to know. We knew that we needed to teach the Word of God. In light of people who weren't doing that anymore, teach the Word of God. We knew that we needed to send people out and be missionaries. And we did that. Our knowledge created in us, our knowledge of God and of Christ, and our life being redeemed by Him created in us action and a lot of things. Missionaries were born here. Missionary agencies were born here. We sent people out. And over years and years, students were developed up. And I'm so gracious to be one of those students who was developed up. I even, if I can brag on some of my high school students, they every week meet and create lunches. They make sandwiches and waters and do all of these things. Then they get these food, this food ready. They load it up in wagons and they head down to the civic center after church and they pass out lunches. They write Bible verses on little cards and they're talking with people and they're developing relationships with the less fortunate people in Santa Ana. But that's just one thing that we're doing. We have other students who are recycling constantly and constantly figuring out ways to give money to the water project that's going on in the bookstore. We have a group of young people led by Martin Eden who are riding a century, which is an incredibly long bike ride. And they've trained themselves. They've developed in themselves the perseverance physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually to do this race but not just to do it for fun, but to do it so that they could raise awareness, they could raise funds for our future student center and for missions all around the world. They, these young people who are being attacked, and I can give testimony to this, who are being attacked on every level based on your 
guidance, based on your faithfulness, based on the people who came before you, based all the way back to the reality of who Jesus is, are being trained in faithfulness. So continue, keep going. And that's, even that is the tip of the iceberg. I want to show you a video of what happened this summer. Let this video encourage you. Let this video inspire you. Let this video be a testimony to how we are persevering in what we know. Let's watch. True life, real love. This kind of fellowship with one another, this overcoming differences and boundaries and having a real love for one another displayed through loving good deeds and proclaiming truth. True life, real love. He's saying, I have shown you that faith requires action and the action that it requires is love. After we hear that truth, how can we then say, I love you, Lord, and then leave and go and live a life in complete denial of him? And among those denials, how can we say that we don't like each other? How can we hate one another? How can we not care for one another? The two require unity. I love you, Lord. Therefore, in every way, I show love to my brothers and sisters. It should be clearly seen that God is working in my life. When I'm walking and following Christ, when I'm living in His light, when He's shining His light to penetrate the darkness of sin, then it changes me. I look different. I act different. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. That Jesus is the end and the means. Jesus is our only hope to have a good marriage, right? Or a good family or good life in any way. And so Jesus is what we seek after. And so I just want to encourage us to not let anything come before him. Don't elevate anything above him. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. So we are to be like Christ. We are to love like Christ. We are to have conviction like Christ had conviction. We are to believe the things that he believed. And chiefly among all of those, we are to love one another. By that, people will know us. We are all one in Christ. And we need to say, God, I want to be in fellowship, not just with you, not just with my core, closest group of friends, but I want to be in fellowship with this local church community to be one in Christ and to see how can we then, as that community, change the world. Do you live every day with that confidence? I want you to know if Jesus is coming back again and if we are to abide in him and when he comes, we do not want to look at him in shame. How are we to live? How do we live a holy life in preparation for his return? It's love, it's Christ, it's the truth of who he is. It's getting things in the right order. That we must believe that we have faith, that we have faith in the grace of Christ alone saves nothing else. We cannot get this wrong or we're preaching a gospel of behavior modification instead of the gospel of Jesus. His sacrifice on the cross is the cleansing of my sin. He can't cleanse sin that I won't admit I commit. And so we have to have the reality that says, yes, I do that. Yes, that's my problem, but I need Jesus to cleanse. We're not asking people to become better sinners. We're asking people to become born again saints in Jesus Christ. Where do you need redemption? Where is the enemy pulling you in? 
Is it in the lust of the flesh? Is it in the lust of your eyes? Or is this boastful pride of life what is drawing you in? When you're a child of God, when you're saved, you know you're a child of the Father. You know that. John says that of 1 John. These things I've written to you in order that you might know that you're born again. So I'm asking, who's your daddy? If you don't know that you're a child of the Father through Christ, taking away your sins, trusting in Him, having full confidence that when He comes, you'll be purified as He is pure. If you don't know that, I want to invite you to know that. The gift of Christ is free. Paul says it. It's a gift so that no one may boast. But out of that gift, out of gratitude for that, we live out the life and character of Christ. They require one another. You can't say, I've received the free gift of love. I have received Christ. And in my salvation is my root. And then out of that say, but I produce no fruit. They have to be connected, and I want you to connect them. In this last chaotic hour, verse 25 stands out as this beacon of hope, and it says, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. So we're called to abide in Jesus, to make our home in Jesus, with the idea that we have a future home with Jesus Christ, which is in heaven, and it's eternal life with God. Don't you dare come to Calvary thinking that it doesn't require anything, thinking that you can just sit here, go away, and not do anything. It requires something. It requires that you let the love of God save you and salvation wash over you and out of that, love one another and, and have conviction and have purpose in life. God, may our lives be the picture to the world of who you are, that they would seek you and find you, God. Help us to run towards you and run towards good works that will make your name great in this world. I pray as you watch that and you think about the themes that are in this letter, that it makes sense to you what, what we're saying and what John is saying. And as I said in there, I said it towards the end, that if you come to Calvary, we expect something of you. Well, the reason I said that, and the reason we do say that, is because that we love everyone here, and everyone is free to be here. Everyone can come as much as they like, but we want more for everyone. There is more in this life for you. And as we sit here on the eve of a, new ser of a new series, and after thinking through all of these truths that in a lot of ways get re re recycled and repeated in John over and over again, and as we sit here and we think about going forward and thinking about better together, being better with one another, and moving forward into our community, I can't help but think that there are people who are here or who have been coming here for quite a while, and that's great, and we love you, and we want you to be here, but we also would want for you more. And that more looks like salvation. That more looks like coming to Christ with what you have, offering up yourself, being forgiven of your sins, and being brought into a life-saving, eternal kingdom through your faith in Christ Jesus. 
And I know that there are people who maybe need to be brought further into that. We all are being brought further into what it looks like to be in Christ. But maybe there's people who who are here who need to do that for the first time. And if that's one of you, and if you feel that moving inside of yourself, and if you feel that stirring, I would ask you to do something. I am going to, right after this, go over here to this prayer point. And I'll just be standing over there. We're we're going to sing a, a few songs of worship to our Lord. I'll be over there for one or two of them. And I would love for you to just come join me. Allow me to pray for you. Allow me to explain to you what this life is. And allow yourself to be brought to God. And as we, as we close and as we're, we think about the entirety of the letter, 1 John, I want, like I said, us to end how John wanted it to end. That above all, we would have confidence and that we would know that we are in Christ and that in Christ we have eternal life. Know that. Let us all know that. Let us worship these songs in light of knowing that. Let us live our day-to-day knowing that. And like I said from the very beginning, the type of knowing, the type of faith isn't something that's weak or small. It is courageous. It is bold. And it is very real. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be here, Lord. Thank you for Calvary. Thank you for your body of believers all around the world and in all of history, Lord, that give testimony to who you are. I thank you that this letter was written, Lord. I thank you that we have benefited from it. I pray, God, for all of us that we would have the things of in this, that are in this letter, the knowledge of following you, Lord. Bless us. Continue to guide us. Continue to minister to us and love us, Lord. May we respond to you. And I pray specifically, Lord, who, for anyone who would like to respond that first time, God, I pray that you would move in them and that you would cause them to come and talk to someone today. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for all you're doing in our lives. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.